Hey, thanks for tuning into the Kelly Cotrera podcast for Thursday, September the 10th. Today on the podcast, infectious disease expert Dr. Suman Chakrabarty talks about what happens when a major COVID vaccine trial gets put on hold and a few other COVID-related stories. Plus, Just for Laughs is going virtual this year. The when, the where, the who of the festival with its top dog. But first, Ontario jury trials are resuming next week, but not in a courtroom. This is, we've got a major backlog of cases because of the pandemic and the Ontario Superior Court is resuming jury trials next week by moving jury selection out of the courtroom into the Metro Toronto Convention Centre. Now, that could be fraught with all kinds of problems. Here to talk about it, Mark Farron, who's the founder of Canadian Juries Commission. Welcome to the show. Good to have you on. Thanks for having me on. Mark, um, this is interesting. I understand we've had to pivot because of the pandemic, but did you expect that we would be holding jury selection in a place like the Metro Toronto Convention Centre? I mean, these are jury trials that involve the most serious crimes. I think as uh, as the pandemic deepened and as the courthouses began to close in March um, and conditions, public safety concerns um, uh, increased across the country, there were musings about the need to potentially move uh, trials to larger venues, um, given social distancing that was happening uh, across our society. So that we had expected that this would happen. Um, and um, and obviously the the federal justice minister uh, convened uh, an action committee to study the issue and release recommendations across the country uh, with physical distancing and health and safety provisions and the like. So we were we were expecting this. Okay, so. Since July, Ontario courtrooms have been opening, uh, reopening, and uh, they've got enhanced safety measures in place, enhanced uh, cleaning, face coverings, barriers in place. Apparently, they plan to be doing the same thing at the Metro Toronto Convention Centre, where jurors will be screened for COVID three times before entering a court. Uh, First, after receiving a summons, they'll complete an online uh, pre-screening process to avoid unnecessary in-person appearances. Those considered high risk will be exempted. Second, an online check-in must be completed 48 hours before going to court for the selection process. And finally, all potential jurors will be screened on location before entering. That is uh, what I'm getting from the CBC who ran a story on this. But that's fine with the, looks like they're taking care of our safety. But that, you actually have security concerns where, you know, it, it, it goes beyond the pandemic safety concerns. What are your concerns when it comes to moving jury selection to the Metro Toronto Convention Centre? We're talking about moving uh, jurors, the public, um, but the, one of the most important components of the, of the justice system to a very large venue. And I'm extremely concerned about jurors' uh, safety and security in, in that large venue. Jurors have, have um, uh, complained and been concerned for decades about being followed uh, from the courthouse through a hall in the like in existing courthouses now jurors have expressed concerns about their security you know especially sitting in large um, uh, uh, cases involving criminal elements involving gangs involving organized crime um, they have expressed concerns about being followed to their cars in in the parking garage, uh, followed to the TTC, followed to um, uh, through public spaces outside of the courthouse. So that's happening now. And now mm-hmm. we're moving the jury to a very large 
you know, two million square foot convention center with those same concerns. And so I've I've asked all provinces to uh, to give the jury access to the same security and and uh, parking considerations that the the judiciary uh, uh, have in place and other uh, court actors. So if we're if we're considering the jury um, an officer of the court uh, and mm-hmm. the judges of the facts, they should be afforded the same security and privacy conditions. So you're saying that the in- possible intimidation of jurors could, I guess, affect the outcome of, of the justice system on the whole. Uh, if these people are frightened for their lives, they might uh, change the way they're going to um, look at the case. Well, I, I, I think, you know, we're, we, we can't leave things to chance. And so um, we should be uh, we should be affording the jury complete safety and security for their physical well-being. And so if that means uh, stepping up um, the, the procedure to excuse the jury, move them through uh, through uh, private exit and, mm-hmm. you know, escorting them to whatever um, uh, exit or parking um uh, uh, facility is available to them. That's something that we have to do. Um, yeah, but you can't drive home with them. I mean, you can escort them all you, you know, want, but you can't drive home with them. I see the problem there. Well, however, you know, judges have a lot of discretion. And mm-hmm. um, during uh, during one particular case in March, at the at the, uh, the as courthouses were beginning to close, a judge was issuing taxi chits to all of the jury. And that was that was part of the concern for COVID-19, which was to say, we if I don't want you worried about your uh, physical health going on uh, on public transit. Here's a taxi chit that will allow you at least the um, the security and and uh, and the like to travel to and from the courthouse unfettered. And so, you know, these are small measures that aren't going to be a burden to the taxpayer. They're but are going to allow our justice system to continue. Um, but, not, to, not to mention the fact that jury pay still remains um, at the same level uh, in, as it did in 1995. Uh, you're looking just, for pandemic pay for jurors, correct? You're advocating for that? Well, I, I'm, I'm actually advocating for just a, an increase in jury pay, period. Like the table stakes are that, that jury pay has not kept pace with the modern world, has not kept pace with the cost of living in Canada's most expensive city, and is a barrier for individuals to participate in the justice system. Give and, us a quick idea of what that looks like, how juries, jurors are compensated. Well, now a juror is not compensated in Ontario at all for the first uh, 10 days of the trial. You receive nothing. Um, How often uh, is it that a, a trial would go beyond 10 days? Well, they vary, but there are, uh, I mean, my trial was five months long. Um, okay. There have been many criminal cases that, that will uh, extend uh, beyond the first, uh, the first week. So it rises to $40 a day, which is roughly $5 an hour. Um, and that's well below minimum wage. Hmm. And so that's the table stakes now. Um, you know, jury duty should be made an essential service um, and should be afforded the same uh, provisions that we are applying to frontline workers and to to uh, other essential service workers. 
Um, if it's a mandatory civic duty, which it is, with a legal requirement to, uh, to respond to your summons, we should be treating it as such. And we should be providing individuals with, um, with fair compensation. It also shuts out voices who simply can't afford to participate in the justice system. The individuals who said, yeah, I would love to serve. I actually want to do it. But I'm self-employed and I can't afford mm-hmm. to do it. Um, Mark, and if we're, go ahead. I want to ask you about, if I could, because we're running out of time here, uh, the, the jury selection uh, and the jury trials will start uh, on September the 16th. Is the jury trial actually going to happen in the convention center as well? Or do we know what's going on with the trial? Because selection, it's I'm unclear the way uh, it's being reported right now. I know that uh, jury trials will resume next week, but are they resuming in court? And is it just the convention center that's being used for uh, selection? It, it sounds like it could be a hybrid of both. Um, it, it's, and I've been receiving the same media release that you are, so I'm not clear either. Um, so it sounds, what I understand from some individuals, it sounds like it's a hybrid. Some trials could take place at the convention center. Some trials could resume um, at University Avenue. Um, obviously, in smaller towns across the country and across the province, jury trials are likely going to be maintained in the same facility. So if we're talking, you know, Thunder Bay or, or uh, Sault Ste. Marie or Sudbury, those trials are going to continue in the courthouses there. Um, perhaps selection might occur in a larger uh, venue like a hockey arena, but uh, the, the trial might resume um, in the courthouse. But this is why... We have to raise the table stakes um, as, as they stand now. The, the, the status quo is no longer acceptable. The pandemic has exposed the, the fissures in our justice system. It's time for us to recognize that, that the system can't continue the way it is. And this is to improve jury duty and improve confidence in the justice system for, for all our citizens. Mark, I'm going to leave it at that. And thank you so much for your time this morning. Oh, it was a pleasure being on. Thank you for having me. Thanks. That's Mark Ferrant. He's the uh, founder of the Canadian Juries Commission talking about Ontario trials. They're going to be those jury trials will be set to resume next week after they have been really shut down since March. So that's the latest on that. All right. This week, we learned that a phase three clinical trial, the the one that we were pinning a lot of hopes on for COVID vaccine, That is being developed by the University of Oxford and pharmaceutical company AstraZeneca was put on hold after a reported unexplained illness in one of the trial volunteers. Dr. Suman Chakrabarti, infectious disease specialist at Trillium Health Partners, joins the show. Dr. Chakrabarti, welcome. Good to have you along. Hi, great to be back. So what does this mean exactly when a phase three clinical trial has been on hold? What, What happens now? Yeah, this is something that obviously was a, a, a concern. But what this is showing is that uh, the biggest thing is that safety, which is what you really, really want with these vaccines uh, as a secondary thing to efficacy, is being looked at seriously. And that's what I think they're doing. They're just confirming that this rare side effect that occurred is not something that's more common. It's not from the vaccine itself. And it's very possible this is something that was just happened by chance that has nothing to do with the vaccine, but they really want to confirm that. Okay, so who confirms that? What happens now? 
So what will happen is that, uh, so the New York Times actually reported this yesterday. It was a case of something called transverse myelitis. So this is like a localized uh, um, inflammation of the spinal cord that can result in things like temporary paralysis, loss of sensation. This can be caused by most commonly things like viral infections, some autoimmune diseases, but occasionally it's been linked to vaccines. It's it's kind of a loose link, but it's Mm -hmm. been there. And what they're going to do is get infectious diseases specialists, neurologists, and some other uh, people with uh, internal medicine background to look at the case, try to see if they can find a cause and uh, rule in the likelihood that it happened from a vaccine or something completely unrelated. Okay, so it, a big part of stage three trial, the, you know, the, the, th- the last of the three stages of human testing mm-hmm. is to get a better idea of possible side effects. That side effect seems pretty intense. It's not like your average sausage fingers. So how how often does this happen that you shut down a a trial at phase three just to make sure you do some safety, safety checks? It's certainly not unheard of, but as you can imagine, like this is a trial that the, you know the entire world is watching. So they really want to do everything the right way, uh, and I think that this is, is being done. And I, like I said before, and we've actually talked about this, is that look, we need to make sure these vaccines that are coming out, we need them. We need them as a as a population, but we need to make sure that they're safe for everybody. And I think I applaud the uh, study um, group here looking at this, pausing, make sure things are good before they move on. Right. And they would move on if they have determined that this was not because of the vaccine. This would have happened anyways. That's exactly right. And I think that's important that uh, transverse myelitis is something that usually does not happen from a vaccine. It's other things. Sometimes you don't really find out uh, the exact reason of why it happened, but there's still ways of looking at the likelihood. You know, is this something that's associated with underlying MS, for example, which is this, this person may have as far as we know. But the point is you want to make sure to kind of show, is this likely from the vaccine or likely not. Normally, it takes up upwards of 10 years to produce a working vaccine. I think we're all familiar with that. Now, governments, researchers, and pharma are assuring people that checks and balances are being met in this race to get a COVID vaccine. What does the message um, of the, the hold put on the AstraZeneca vaccine trial convey to the average person? Do you think it's confidence or do you think it's su- suspicion? I think in this situation is confidence. Of course, things are very different right now. We have a pandemic. We have people that are just focusing on vaccine work and not all sorts of other things that you'd be normally research. So a lot of that time is being contracted because of this, and a lot of funding is also being funneled into the situation, so we have the resources. So I think that overall, these, these trials are set up very well. Now, of course, not mm-hmm. every vaccine was. The Russian one <laughs> is a little bit um, suspect, uh, given that they're completely... Yeah. Skipping, but I think overall they're guinea pigging their their uh, populace. Yeah, it, it's not a good situation. But the other ones that are being done the right way, I think these are quite trustworthy. So back in May, we spoke to Canadian Blood Services. They were doing this study uh, in conjunction with Canada's COVID nineteen Immunity Task Force, which analyzed over thirty seven thousand blood samples collected from nine provinces. They did not um, include Quebec or the territories. And this happened between May and June, and they were looking for COVID antibodies in the blood donations, and they hoped that it may indicate herd immunity. Now. What they have discovered is less than 1% of Canadian blood donors have tested positive for SARS-CoV-2 antibodies. What do you think this tells us about COVID-19? 
Yeah, this is a tough one to interpret, but you have to look at this in the context of everything else. What we're seeing is even in certain places like New York that had a huge number of cases, there's not really all that many people who were infected at once. So, you know, it's, it's something, I think it was a 10%. So this is obviously much less. This said, though, the people who give blood are a certain population that might not be representative of the full population in the background. The other thing we have to remember is that the antibody doesn't tell the whole story about immunity. So I think this shows that, you know, there might be a very, very small number of people who were exposed to COVID uh, SARS-CoV-2. But overall, like, you know, we have to kind of take this with a grain of salt and put it in context of everything else we know about the infection. I'm, I like the fact that you brought up that the population that gives blood might not represent most Canadians because I, I brought this up at the time. You know, this is a, a more altruistic a group of Canadians. And so because they are, they might be the ones that are following ha- uh, safety measures for COVID-19 more stringently than the rest. They may be the, one that are, the ones that are paying attention to physical distancing and we're better at lockdown. I love that you brought that up because that's one of the biggest things, the thorns in our side with the research and stuff going on with COVID-19 is recognizing what we call these confounding variables. What we're seeing in front of us seems pretty, you know, oh, what, what does this mean? But then when you look at it, there's other factors that go in and can influence the result. And that's what we're constantly trying to do as scientists and in medicine to kind of weed those things out and try to figure out what's actually the study telling us. Right. And so the, the, this study, it might not be uh, a real representation of our, our Canadian immunity, but what does it tell us about the possibility of a risk of a second wave? If it is, um, and we have less than 1% of Canadian blood donors that have tested positive, and that is representative of Canadians, does this increase the risk of our second wave? I think that it uh, it certainly does contribute, but I think the second wave that uh, you know we think is coming uh, within the next few months, and it might might not even be that big, we don't know yet. But I think that what it's telling us is that yeah, the population may still be susceptible to it. So it's important for us to kind of uh, abide by the public health principles. The biggest one of which, of course, is physical distancing, avoiding indoor gatherings, and wearing masks where you can't physically distance. These simple principles are still very very important going forward because COVID is still with us, and we have to. Keep Keep that in mind. Dr. Chakrabarty, it's always a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks again for having me. Take care. Have, have a great day. Dr. Suman Chakrabarty is infectious disease specialist at Trillium Health Partners. I think it's important that we talk about the big events in the city of Toronto that, um, and in, in Canada that are going virtual this year. Uh, TIFF kicked off today, the Toronto International Film Festival. They have some drive-in events and maybe a few uh, outdoor showcases, but on the whole, it is going to be an online affair, and it's not the only one. The Just for Laughs Festival is going online. Here to talk about the festival, we are joined by uh, Just for Laughs president, Bruce Hills. Welcome to the show, Bruce. How are you? I am fantastic. I'm sure that, you know, this is something that you guys started working on at the beginning of the pandemic. How quickly did you have to pivot by going virtual? What, what did that entail? Well, the first thing is, you know, I think like everyone, we were very concerned about what we were able, would be able to do um, and, you know, and to do at a first class level and, and, and of course, safely. So, you know, we were working on huge plans for September 2020. Um, you know, we're now, you know, very much focused on two things. We, we won. We want to put a festival in place in 21 that lives up to its reputation. But in the interim, we felt for our fans, you know, very important for the fans that have, uh, uh, the films, the fans that uh, have uh, loved JFL 42, that mm-hmm. we don't leave them hanging, and we put something in front of them um, 
uh, before next year. And, and so we decided that uh, we better start thinking about how we can do something that feels up to the caliber of the brand, what people expect, and works in digital. And I think that's, you know, a very important part, Kelly, is that, you know, we don't want standouts performing in their, in their kitchen to seven people. Uh, we want to do things where they're comfortable, where they're at their best, where they're funny, where they can be thoroughly entertaining in this online online space. Okay, I'm really curious to see, you know, how that would look, because I got I got to be honest, I thought, well, this is one of those festivals that could go online and it, and it could actually work. But now that I hear you talk about that, I'm thinking about the late night uh, comedians and, and some of their monologues and just how they, even though they're very skilled performers, it seems like they need the audience to fuel them. So how are you going to work these um you know, premier talent, how, how do you film them? Are you going to film, film them um, in a way that they are performing for a live audience or how, what's the workaround? Yeah. Well, first and foremost, it's, it's what are we asking them to do and making sure we're asking the right people to do it. So first and foremost, there will be stand up in front of an audience. <laughs> uh, details on that will come in a couple of weeks, but the majority of what we're going to do, Kelly is in convos and panels very similar to what happens at JFL 42 in the comedy con space. You know, the events we have during the day where we put the cast of Letter Kenny together, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to do those events, those types mm. of events. We're going to do Q and A's with two people that are, um, you know, that are specifically booked to, to, to uh, you know, to, you know, really to get the best out of the other, um, you know, uh, Hannah Gatsby, uh, we'll have a very good friend of hers engaging with her, Dan Smith. And, um, you know, we want to get the funny out of them. We also want to discuss some of the subjects that are really important at the moment. I mean, comedy will be at the forefront, but we also have a lot of important matters that we want to deal with within our event. Um, sure. So, I, yeah, so really, and again, what what's also important about it is we want to go majority live. So there's a feeling that you're in the middle of something vibrant. It's not a so bunch streaming of tapes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're going to stream this. The majority of what we're going to do is live. Um, it's two days. It's packed. We've had uh, we've done a deal with Kevin Hart's company to be the the uh, programming to help us program this event. They're going to have their own room within the festival that I'd be very shocked if you don't see Kevin uh, a part of. Um, so, you know, we wanted to make sure that not only did we go out and get some great names, like kind of got to as I mentioned, Joe Coy, Howie Mandel, Kenya Barris, you know, big event with um, Canada's drag, uh, Canada's drag race. We want to also make sure that uh, with Kevin and Kevin's taste and his team, they're going to curate a room as well that will add to, I believe, you know, it will be the premium comedy festival this year, but it's just going to be online. Um, and most importantly, uh, Kelly, it's free. We believe that we want to be able to make it available to everyone. Uh, you know, of course, for our, our fans in Toronto that have supported our event for 10 years, well, soon to be 10 years, next year is our anniversary, uh, but also the fans around the world. Um, I got to ask the, I got to ask the obvious, how can you afford to do it free? Are we talking about comedians that are so, um, I mean, comedians feed off the audience and off their craft that are so, uh, just addicted to the art of performance that they're willing to give their time free. 
No, they're not giving their time free, but it's uh, we've done you know deals that are affordable. Let me put it that okay. way. Uh, and um, and we've also found a way, like we always try to, is incentivize them with something that motivates them creatively. Like to be smart about how we, you know, look, we call someone up and say, would you be interested to talk to this person? Or would you be interested in this this type of show under these conditions? Um, and, uh, and you know, we go to our, our friends, the people that we've worked with forever and say, look, we're, we're pivoting to something that we'd like you to be included in. Here's some ideas. What do you think? And we work out the idea with them. Um, but at the, you know, at the end of the day, we're paying for this event with the support, of course, of some sponsors, uh, loyal sponsors and, and government uh, support. But we're also investing our own money in, in this operation because we believe it's so important to the brand. And we don't want to take a year off. We want to get in front of our fans. And we wanted something that was funny, great and free. So JFL, it's it's 100% virtual this year. It's 100% free. takes place in two days. Is there room uh, for these young comics, comics that really desperately need venues and, and, and festivals like Just for Laughs to break through with two days? And how do you highlight those those comics that we need to hear about? Yeah. Yeah. Well, in, in the thing that we're going to have to deal with is we can't do everything we want to do. But there will be one very important showcase within our festival, which is the New Faces uh, Creators Showcase, uh, which is very important. We have, but not announced yet, some significant um, events coming up in the fall. A couple might be in Toronto, but we'll announce those soon. That will give Canadian Comics a significant platform. So All that, right, is, and- uh, that is a done deal, just not announced, and very much supported by our loyal broadcast partners, Bell and CBC. Okay, well, I look forward to talking to you then uh, in the coming uh, future. But uh, I got to let you go, Bruce. But before I do, where do people make sure that they bookmark uh, the festival? October 9th and 10th at hahaha.com where everything funny happens and that is it for today's podcast don't forget we broadcast live monday through friday from nine till noon on global news radio 640 toronto if you can spare some time please do and until tomorrow have a great day